The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. We're kinky done differently. What women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self, with questions asked by a guy. And now, here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. I'm John, also known as Hi There, Catsuit, and it's time once again to examine how people connect with each other and to their own authentic selves. We've had some great shows lately, and you can check them all out in the archives, including last week's amazing show with blogger O. Pearl, as we celebrated 10 years of her writing. Next week, we will be visiting with the amazing fire dancer, entertainer, and teacher, Flo Mayhem. This week, we finally go all the way to the right side of the slash and visit with a remarkable woman who has decided that the power of pain can have so many possibilities for good in life. Rachel Leadham is a sadomasochism integration mentor founder of The Conscious Masochist, an online community for lovers of pain who desire to live in greater harmony with their dark side and become more mindful of the ways they unconsciously choose pain over pleasure. She approaches sadomasochism from a philosophical and spiritual perspective, weaving timeless wisdom into S&M. You can join her community on Instagram, at The Conscious Masochist, or visit her website. And now, here's the woman who has decided that pain has a part of her life in the most beautiful way. Rachel Leadham, The Conscious Masochist. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it The First Five. Time now for The First Five with Rachel Leadham, The Conscious Masochist. First time you ever went owl and meant it in a good way. Mm. I remember falling off my bike pretty badly around eight or nine. I scraped up the entire part of my knee and my upper thigh. And I, that was definitely a good owl. It was a painful, bad owl, but it was still a very good conflicting owl. And I think that's my first thoughts always stemmed as far back as I can remember to seven ish years old. So I think that was kind of the first moment of uh, a big owl. That was a good owl. <laughs> first time you ever admitted I'm a masochist. Mm. To my ex around 18. So was, I'm not trying to pry, but how long ago uh, was that? That was, let's see, at this point, about seven years ago. I'm 25, almost 26. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
First time you ever were a masochist in a formal BDSM scene and your reaction to it. That was uh, about a year ago. And yes, ironically, it took me a long time to get on the actual bandwagon of accepting accepting this part of myself in terms of enough to enter into a situation, I guess, let's say with another person. Um, my reaction to it was very good. I feel like I thankfully have, have at, as of a year ago, I had honed my ability to, let's say, trust my gut sense of a person, um, my ability to kind of vet the situation and feel into the energy of it. And we built up a friendship and everything before then that I felt like, you know, I was dating him at the time, but it was still kind of in a looser situation where that was a part of the, the arrangement, you know, so to speak. And it, yeah, it was very good. Just no, I've been very lucky, no bad experiences. So first time, some sort of intense mental pain was released through physical pain. What was it you were dealing with? And how did it physically manifest itself through being able to be released through pain? That's an excellent question. I, I would say the first time that comes to mind is probably around eight or nine. And there was a lot of just in general, anger, stress, and chaos, let's say in my home growing up. And at that point, that was one of the first time coming to mind uh, was one of the nights where I felt very, I felt very triggered in terms of my emotions rising and rising to where I, my instinctual go-to at that moment in time, mentally usually was that I should never have been born, that the world would be a much better place. Namely my parents' lives would be a much better place if I didn't exist, that I probably just in being here was a huge burden on them and that I should, you know, it, that sense of energetic and emotional build up the pressure just kind of culminating in one of those moments where I just felt so out of control and my instinctual go-to at that point in time was usually scratching my wrists um, and scratching my forearms. And that was the first time that I scratched so much that I remember bleeding very minimally, but it provided the emotional release, but also the physical endorphin release, the adrenaline and the amount of just peace that I remember coming over me, the grounding back into my body, the kind of recalibration, so to speak, with myself in terms of calming that emotional storm that had overtaken me at that moment, definitely set the tone, I feel like, for then the following 10, 15 years of my life where I went through a bunch of different phases with that to different extremes. So I'm going to forego our usual fifth question because mm. 
I think that it is out of place here. So I'm going <laughs> to replace it with this. First time you ever felt a true connection being a masochist to someone else. In that dynamic or just in that dynamic, in that dynamic. I would say honestly that I have not had that. I, I mean, I would say I've, you can physically connect, you can emotionally connect to an extent, but I feel like in terms of what I always envision in my head, that real sense of, of connection, of intimacy, of release and trust with someone where it really hits the spot. I don't know if I've ever experienced that yet, but admittedly, as we said, I'm rather young, so <laughs> it will come. Hi, my name is Leanne, and I am the owner of Polyphilia, where you can get your daily fix of memes dedicated to polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, and personal growth in open relationships. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Polyphilia Blog, spelt P-O-L-Y-P-H-I-L-I-A-B-L-O-G. I hope to see you there, and please also check out my episode on what women and other wonderful humans want. Hello, I'm Jessie Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Rachel Leadham is an author, is an educator, and has a great website at rachelleadham.com, which includes all her brands, as you call it. I am going to preface this entire episode mm -hmm. by saying that in just listening to your description of what is a conscious masochist, mm -hmm. a lot of things triggered in my brain. Mm. I have gone through a lot of mental health situations in my life yeah. where I don't take care of myself. Yes. And I don't know if that makes me someone who enjoys the pain of things not working out because I don't think that's the case, but, and this isn't meant to be a brag at all. <laughs> not having taken any drugs or alcohol to dull any pain, mm -hmm. I have survived every bit of pain that's been thrown at me. Mm. When I heard what your definition of a conscious masochist is, I heard about the self-loathing. I heard about the shame. In your story about feeling like you would be better not being around to your parents. Mm -hmm. it all hit home. 
Yeah. So what I'd like to ask you first is how do you come to grips that being a conscious masochist can be healthy as opposed to something that can just drive you crazy? Yes. <laughs> and it's a very subtle distinction, but it's there is a clear line, at least in my experience and how I've come to, to view it and think about it. I think to me, let's say if conscious masochism could be used here twofold. First of bringing conscious awareness just to our masochistic traits, thoughts and tendencies and anything that we ever, as you said, kind of the ways we don't take care of this ourselves, the way we get trapped in guilt, the way we get trapped in chronic perfectionism and holding ourselves to such a high standard that we know we've already set ourselves up for failure and we could never attain that. And that's a form of then self-punishing ourselves both beforehand, during and after. Um, kind of examining all of those elements, again, the mental, the physical, the emotional, and just getting very clear of what that picture looks like to you, because we all are very different. We have different backgrounds. We have different influences. And once we kind of understand, let's say, okay, what you're working with and what your struggles particularly are, then it's choosing, okay, well, I know here that I I am wired this way for some reason. This part of me does not seem to be in everybody else. And I can't, I can't do anything about the fact that I was born this way, but I can say, how can I truly meet that part with as much love, acceptance, and curiosity as possible to really find out what it needs from me to live in harmony here so that we're not constantly fighting each other. And I think for me, that was such a, a big struggle throughout my childhood and my teens of feeling like constantly at war between those parts of me, the part that just wanted to sabotage every good effort that I made that didn't want me to be happy, that didn't feel I had a right to be happy, didn't feel I had the right to be successful or happy over other people. And if, you know, someone's going to get X, Y, Z, well, it shouldn't be me. It should be someone else. Or if how could I even get mad at someone else? I don't have a right to get mad at them. And it's so easy for me to rationalize a lot of things, always putting myself at the bottom of the list. Um, and I think that let's say the more that we strengthen that relationship, not only just with our core self, the more compassionate, kind person that is at the depths of all of us, then approaching that with as much acceptance towards all of the negative voices and all of the demons from then that place, then that's where I've, let's say, cause this did not happen overnight. This was for me, especially a like three year long period of when I was in that true healing integrative kind of mode, I stepped away pretty fully from a lot of the physical masochism the masochism, let's say I chose to keep because I didn't know where that distinction was. And I didn't know what was healthy, what wasn't. I didn't trust myself at that point to be able to decipher, okay, well, where is this pain going to help me? And where is this just a, a form of suffering that I don't need to lean into? Um, so I, when I kind of stepped away from that, chose to rebuild 
again, a lot of those just fundamental building blocks inside of the self-trust and self-love that I didn't feel like I had ever developed in my life. From that place, then I was able to realize, okay, I'm really missing physical pain. I'm really missing, you know, romanticizing certain elements of just darkness in stories. And that's where creativity is such a huge outlet for me because I can go to a lot of those dark, intense, emotional places. And I can live in those scenes again, where BDSM is such a great outlet because you can create an element of fantasy that does allow a bubble of safety for that expression to take place. But I think when we feel like the foundation that the house is built upon is wobbly in the first place, then it is very hard to find that distinction between, okay, well, which, if my compass already feels skewed, then how am I supposed to trust which way it's pointing me in that way? And I think, like we said, that's very understandable. I also do believe it's very doable, but it's, it requires a lot of that introspection and reflection to kind of get honest with yourself of figuring out where those masochistic beliefs and tendencies really are for you, where you feel like they stemmed from, and then connecting again with that inner part of you that does have your best interest at heart, that does want to take care of yourself, that does want to protect you. And then getting that part to protect now your demons in that way and say like, no, you guys get to stay here too. It's all good. But you, you do have to, you have to be redirected and channeled in a way that doesn't actually inhibit my ability to function in this world. And I do need to be able to live a healthy, happy, safe life. I deserve that. And so does everyone else. And how can we all get on board to work through that together? I find it both ironic and frustrating as hell. <laughs> the fact that most of my pain comes from my chasing of joy. Mm -hmm. And the more I chase the joy, mm -hmm. the more it hurts. Yeah. It feels very unattainable or just, yeah, foreign, unfamiliar, uncomfortable. And then you get to the point of, do I deserve joy? <laughs> yep. Yeah, that one hits deep. And so when I look at uh, the, the terms that you have, encouraging you to embrace the tides within, mm -hmm. feeling that motion within your body and within your brain, mm -hmm. how do you keep it from being a whirlpool? I don't know if you're going to like my answer. <laughs> I don't know if there is a way to necessarily keep it from being a whirlpool. I feel like the more I've learned to swim in the whirlpool and accept the whirlpool, the, the smaller it becomes innately. Mm -hmm. And I think that again, everyone is different in terms of what does work for them within that. But that's where for me, let's say the 90 or 80 or 70% of the time when just a day like this, I'm, I'm not drowning in any intense emotion. Nothing has triggered me. I'm not hurt. I'm not brokenhearted. I'm not upset. I'm not angry. Um, the more that when I'm in this state that I really reaffirm that relationship with the masochist in me, mm -hmm. you know, the more that I really 
give her time and attention, the more that I do prepare myself for those emotional storms. Then when the whirlpool comes, it's not like the negative voices don't rise up. It's not like I feel like all of a sudden in those moments that, okay, now all of a sudden I'm a perfect human being and none of these fears are here. And, you know, this doesn't still scald my soul with burning hot water. And I feel like I can't breathe. Like it, it, it is just as horrible at times, but the other voice is there getting me through it. And each time she gets louder. And that being said, that's where I feel like the overall concept of masochism in terms of the definition of leaning into pain for pleasure, if that's where you find your pleasure, the more that we kind of accept and embrace that, let's say, not everyone does experience those whirlpools for whatever reason in this life, they don't, but we are wired to feel that way. We do experience that extreme level of emotion. And I think that that is so beautiful. And I think that is so incredible in terms of the color and texture it adds to our life. And when we come out of that whirlpool, we see the world in a way that those people who don't experience it in the first place never get to see it. Like we get to connect with people in a way that other people don't. It is such an absolute strength, but that does come through being burned alive, mm -hmm. so to speak, in those moments. So again, whatever we can do to build up structures to support ourselves emotionally and physically to just survive that. And I feel like that's where for me, some of the more subtle energetic practices of whether that's, you know, meditation or visualization or journaling and different things have, they're so simple, but they still have played such a big role in me feeling like I can create that, that small rock at the center of the whirlpool that I still have something to anchor onto, something to hold myself through this storm that I know, okay, this does really hurt, but I'm going to choose to feel this hurt rather than numb it, rather than avoid it, rather than brush it under the rug, rather than downplay it and pretend it's not that bad. No, I'm going to let it be as bad as it needs to be right now because it needs to be really bad apparently. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is okay. Even though it feels like everything in our being is screaming for this to stop and we just can't survive it. The first time I ever witnessed masochism in a BDSM type scene mm -hmm. was when a friend of mine was going to co-top uh, a young lady. Uh -huh. And she said, uh, I'm going to actually feel some of the pain that's going to happen because I want to learn how to use canes. So I need mm. somebody to hit me with them so I can understand what it is. But the person that they were co-topping, I sat back as a novice, uh, novice kinkster mm -hmm. and was like, oh my God, this is abuse. This is downright hurting somebody. Oh my God. Why would no, 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 no. And my, brain was feeling like I should be running. <laughs> and I said to the, the, the uh, male top, the Dom, I said, you scare the living shit out of me. <laughs> now to hear me actually cuss was 
pretty amazing in its own right. <laughs> but I said, I can't see what you're doing is not abuse. And he called over his, his sub. Mm -hmm. And he said, and said the young lady's name. Why is this good for you? And she explained that she has all sorts of mental health issues, including ADD, and that this is the one thing that allows her to focus and not be thinking of everything ahead and everything behind, mm -hmm. which is what I absolutely love as far as being in a scene is anytime I can be stuck in a moment I can't get out of, that's the most beautiful of all. But in her case, it took massive pain. Uh, I ask this because you have a term called masochism integration. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that to me? Yes, absolutely. So I view masochism integration as, again, a perspective shift around our masochistic nature in terms of seeing it as normal and as commonplace within myself as the fact that I am a Capricorn, that I am bubbly, that I have recently in the last year gone vegan. I don't know. It's, it's just <laughs> a part of me. It's not something in any way I, and also this part is a big personal preference. I am pretty open about it with all my family, my friends. Like I, I don't hide it. I don't feel any need to kind of keep it in the shadows anymore. Mm -hmm. But again, that is totally a personal preference. And I don't think there's anything right or wrong in that. Um, but it's for me just become a big element of seeing how, how masochism just means so much to me. And it felt years ago when I used to think that this was something really wrong with me, something bad a fault in my design, a error in the system, it seemed like, okay, well, this is either something I need to repress, reject, I need to hide it from the world, I need to try to fix it. It, it just always seemed like such a negative connotation in my mind. Um, but the more that I started to see, okay, no, I, I can get the hang of this. I can learn how to actually live with this part of myself like it is any other aspect within my personality that I am choosing for it to be here. I know that theoretically I could release it all if I wanted to, but it does genuinely feel authentic to me in certain areas. And I think that goes back to your earlier question of finding that distinction between what parts we do want or need to release and what parts actually feel like, no, I, I find real fulfillment here. I find real joy here. I find again, a connection with my body or with my partner in a way that I don't otherwise get to experience. And there's, again, nothing wrong with that. But it is so understandable that was something that there is a lot of stigma around, a lot of fear around, because people, most people obviously care and they don't want to see someone get hurt. They don't, like you said, that moment of you standing in that room and witnessing that, that's just an innate human reaction of wanting to protect and not wanting someone to be put into pain. And that is a beautiful, amazing thing and something that again, shouldn't ever be sacrificed in a BDSM scene. Um, but when we do have those clear lines within ourselves and within an agreement with someone else that, no, okay, I know what 
where I'm at with this. I know where you're at with this. Our intention is truly aligned. We do trust and respect everyone here. And I am not doing this to cover up any other pain or to just transfer the pain and distract myself. I've done the inner work. I know where I'm coming from. And I feel very confident in choosing this pain. And the integration aspect is just really putting, blending that into your life in a way that feels again, authentic and fun and peaceful versus something that you're always battling or always repressing or always confused about or not wanting to really look at dead in the eye. I'm going to ask this question and ask you to interpret it in whatever way you'd like. Okay. <laughs> Does pain make joy feel better? Yes. For me, at least, I feel like this is definitely a maybe a personal preference. I'd say that there's also that innate aspect of all of humanity that on a subtle everyday level, I feel like would relate to that. I think we can all think of times in our lives where that usually added a sweetness, at least even in the triumph of overcoming a more uncomfortable, strenuous situation and getting to the, the top of the mountain after that long climb really did add a whole sense of pride and elation of looking back at yourself of, oh, look what I achieved. Look what I overcame. Like that was really painful. That was really tough. I think it does make it sweeter. And I think that's again, part of its universal purpose in our lives here is to add a depth to the joy that would not be found if we did not have pain. And what is the kind of joy that is found without pain? I would say it is pure, not as in better, but it's, it's pure as in simple. And again, I don't mean any of these words and that one is better than the other, but I would say it is a simpler, more innocent, more, more just childlike kind of of joy. I think we have just as much of a need for that and just as much of a place for that. But I think when you look at that kind of joy, it, it sparkles in a different way than the, just the cacophony of extreme, just vividness that comes from the pain after or from the joy after pain. Yeah. Rachel Liedam is a writer, researcher, and masochism integration mentor. And in your biography, you talk about your focus being on shadow work. Mm -hmm. I just think those two words together have an amazing connotation. What does it mean to you? Yes. Shadow work to me is doing the inner work of honest exploration of anything we do keep in our shadows, anything we keep in the shadows from our own self, anything we don't want to look at or that we hide away from the world, um, anything that does bring up more shame, fear, anxiety, painful memories, traumas, uh, really getting into the, the nitty gritty of uh, unearthing those those dark crevices and everything we've swept under the rug because there is a lot of inner work that we can do a lot of personal development work and self-growth and that 
is amazing and great, but there is a deeper layer where if we just kind of focus on the surface level and the topical, it, it doesn't really translate then into our deeper relationship with ourselves during those emotional storms and during the times where we really need it. And when the pressure's on and we're all put to the test of going through a loss in the family or a major heartbreak or a sudden life, you know, catastrophe, then that's where those other sides that usually don't acknowledge kind of come to the surface and everyone's again, whether it's that unconscious masochism or unconscious sadism, like those traits come out of when we are hurting and when we're in pain, like, are we taking that on ourselves? Are we taking that out on other people? That doesn't have to be malicious, but it's still just, you know, are you one to prone to snap at the waiter because you're having a really bad day? Any of the just subtle ways that we haven't dealt with something deep within our psyche that then is being pressed upon by something in life. Some, some situation is pressing on that wound that then responds out in the world in a way that we wouldn't, would not choose for it to be. You talked about the different layers and sweeping something under the rug. Mm -hmm. I can visualize that in so many ways in the fact that the deeper the pile of rugs and the deeper <laughs> the layers and the heaviness that happens every time a new factor is plopped on top of the other one. Yes. All wrapped with this bale of shame. Mm. Explain to me how much of an effect shame does in keeping us from getting out from underneath all those layers. Yes, it is absolutely the biggest hindrance. I think we all come across and it's interesting in how so many of us respond to shame in different ways. Um, and again, I think it's funny in the last few years, just in kind of watching the landscape of the world in terms of the self-help personal development world of where people do talk about shame and it's coming to the forefront more nowadays. Like it's a little bit easier to talk about in certain areas, but you hit that tipping point with society where then like, it's okay to talk about certain negative feelings until all of a sudden it's not until those things are a little darker, or a little heavier, or a little bit more messed up or a little bit more confronting or triggering for people. And then all of a sudden, okay, well now you should be ashamed of those things. Like, okay, now, like you have every right to be ashamed of those things. And all of a sudden everyone goes back on what they're saying in the first place of, okay, but we can't fix anything. We can't address these problems. We can't heal anything if it is still hidden under 20 pounds of rugs that are, like you said, wrapped in that coating of shame. And I think that's, again, goes back to what we were saying earlier of developing that really strong compassionate relationship with those parts of yourself. And maybe you have to tackle that one layer at a time. Maybe that takes years. Maybe that, you know, also comes with periods of regression. Like just because we do make a lot of, you know, forward movement in one area doesn't mean that, like you said, something else isn't going to happen in life and pull up something else you hadn't even thought about. And it's going to send you right back to where you are. And then there's more shame because it's, well, I thought I healed from this. I thought I took care of this. And why am I back here? Like, I should be over this by now. Um, so yeah, I, I think that 
we all have different ways of what works for us in healing and addressing shame. But I think it's one of the most important aspects that if you can learn how to face your shame, how to feel it, how to sit with that pain and discomfort of being potentially em embarrassed and ashamed of the ugliness you see in whatever situation of how you handled something, of how you could have done something different, of how you abandoned yourself or abandoned another in a situation, anything that kind of comes to the surface that is difficult to swallow. I think mastering that is probably one of the best things we could do for our relationship with ourselves and our relationships with others, because it really will spill out into every area of our lives. In this colorful oasis on a very clean black and white little gray website, mm -hmm. is this beautiful quote that says from Rumi, and I hope mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing that right. Yes. <laughs> the cure for pain is in the pain. Tell me about that. Mm. Yes, definitely felt like a masochist um, motto right there, <laughs> at least a conscious masochist. Um, I think with that, to me, it really feels like the most eloquent and simple way to just really distill down everything we've been saying of the more that we stop resisting and fighting against pain in any of these areas in our life in terms of its presence being there because of something that happened, something that happened to us, something we did, something we remember, um, something we're afraid to go through. We don't, you know, how many of us stay in miserable relationships or jobs because we're too afraid to feel the pain of that breakup or leaving the job, but instead we're willing to choose day, at, day in, day out, be miserable. And we're already then in pain, like either way, if we have to choose pain in certain situations, I would rather lean into the sharper pain that actually gets me where I want to go, that actually will cure the suffering I'm feeling every day here in this situation. And if that requires one larger burst for long-term happiness and pleasure, then how can I, okay, shift my emotional masochistic tendencies to choose pain or suffering into the one that actually is better for me in the long run versus into the dull everyday suffering that we all go through in certain areas. And so I think that quote really just spoke loudly to me of not being afraid of the pain, but instead seeing the pain as such a wonderful tool and a spotlight on something in our lives that needs to be adjusted, whether that's a perspective shift, whether that's a physical adjustment or something that needs to change, like it really the answers we need are usually walking through that dark tunnel. What place does gentleness have in the life of a conscious masochist? Mm. For me, it is of the utmost importance and it is everywhere. I don't know if that is just my style. And I feel like a lot of people could approach this in a myriad of different ways, but for me, a gentle but very firm approach has been what I needed to coax out some of those, those darker parts to kind of really not scare them off um, as I kind of started to move into the just areas within myself of exploring some of the 
the memories I didn't want to think about of the the things I had done to people that I was really ashamed of that I really regretted because I was hurting so much and I wouldn't take that time and effort to address my own pain. I think a gentle, tender approach for me was paramount because it really helped have compassion for that part that was hurting rather than bringing condemnation or a strict hand right from the get-go that would have just kind of you know, created a more aggressive adversary dynamic between me and that aspect of myself when the entire purpose was to get us both seen eye to eye, then I needed to approach that with a gentler, a gentler hand. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of gray. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works, real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find poly and people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. Do you want to leave us a comment, thought, or have something to contribute to the show, you can now call or text us at the 3W hotline at 513-788-2527. That's 513-788-2527. Or drop us an email at john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. That's john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Rachel Leadham is a, an author, an educator, is a multimedia wizard, as seen through her Instagram, and also someone who believes that human design and astrology can come together to form a personalized S&M blueprint. You call it Starkist. Tell us about that. Yes, I'm very excited about that. We just, as of at least when we're recording this episode, uh, we just released this last week and I did this project in collaboration with a wonderful astrologer that I've been following for a while. And I felt her, her reflections were always just very spot on for me. Um, in my personal opinion, I look at astrology or human design or any kind of metaphysical modality like that as just a wonderful tool for self-reflection and for kind of prompting a little bit of that deeper work that is hard to always, it's hard to hit all of the different angles of, let's say maybe where you have come from a situation or where your motivations may lie. And I think for me, that's where in going deeper throughout my chart and my friends and family, and we spend a lot of time just 
it's like the most fun investigative journey of say, okay, well, how does my Mars sign play into this? And how's my Chiron wound playing out in this situation? And you, when you really kind of look at it all through that lens, you know, take it with a grain of salt and as it feels right for you. But I just feel like it offers such a beautiful guiding system to kind of reflect on a lot of those areas that as we were talking about the shadow work are sometimes hard to always see with clarity and especially being able to talk about that with someone else of having them see you in that way and validate some of your again tendencies or motivations and giving that you know space and that's where i felt like especially when you look at it through the lens of our sadomasochistic tendencies whether physical emotional sexual spiritual finding the clues of that within our chart has been so helpful for me in understanding exactly where a lot of my of my both negative and positive traits within that lie and exactly why maybe this was with me as long as i can remember and exactly why i came into this life with that deeper more extreme spectrum of feeling emotions and why i'm more prone to romanticize the darkness or feel the need to collapse into being saved or just a lot of the different elements that would not necessarily always make sense, I guess, let's say. So it's been very fun to kind of get to dive into that now with people. Playing off the blueprint, what was the blueprint of young Rachel's life? What did you think you were going to be doing? at this point mm. in your life at when i was younger it was that i was going to be a marine biologist and be living in the bahamas because i have a deep love of whales and dolphins uh then that kind of morphed into writing and acting and just both my sister and i we love screenwriting we love books and the art of storytelling always has just been a very deep passion of mine. So that evolved into then working with my mom's company. And then that took me to the last couple of years where then this element of blending my, my self-realization journey with my writing, with the creative storytelling aspect with this other part that had been kept in the shadows of my masochism all into one big happy family of what i am doing now so it's been a kind of unorthodox evolution but i really enjoyed it and you have as we tape this episode you're about to embark in an online course called the art of conscious masochism it sounds like not only a really amazing subject, especially with all the stuff we've talked about today, but it also gives an educational spin to the point of you can learn this as well. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the course. Yes. So it will be an eight week journey to master that relationship with your inner masochist. And as you said, learn the philosophy of conscious masochism, as we talked about earlier, kind of the subtle differences and distinguishing where that line is for you, evaluating what your current masochistic makeup may be right now and where 
those traits are not serving you and how you can reimagine or redesign your masochism to fit into your life in a way that does only lead to more happiness and authenticity. Um, I'm going to be teaching on some of the metaphysical and philosophical modalities and perspectives that have really helped me along my journey and kind of give anyone a different starting point to rabbit holes that they can go down within their own evolution and just kind of create a community around building healthier relationships, both within ourselves first and foremost, but then with the people in our lives and how to, whether you're going to speak about your masochism or not, understand that it's still always going to play a part in your relationships. And just because the people around you may not know it's there doesn't mean that those traits aren't playing out, especially on an emotional level and how we can really bring some light to that. You have created an entirely new way of looking at a part of life that many kinksters have understood, but maybe taking it to this much deeper level. Was there anybody within the kink scene that inspired you to want to do this as an educator and a writer? Mm. I would say not in the kink scene necessarily as that has, in terms of, let's say, my official kind of personal exploration of the kink scene only began about two years ago, mm -hmm. two and a half years ago. Um, before that, I initially, my research started more on the psychological element, and there was a psychologist named Sam Vaknin. And I had found his video back when I was 19 or 20 on masochistic personality disorder. And that really got me down this path in terms of, okay, well, what's, what's that? Because every point he just listed in that video, like that is me and that, well, okay. Are there therapists who focus on this? Like, are there books I can read? And there was just nothing. There's, there's some information from Sigmund Freud back on moral masochism in the late 1800s. There's a psychologist named Theodore Millen who had spoken on it a little. Um, and there just were very few resources truly focused in on psychological and emotional masochism. And that's where I kind of exhausted all of the options I could. And then that's where I initially set it to the side and said, okay, they're all pretty much saying this is an incurable personality like aspect. I'm just going to move on with my life and go down this other healing journey. And I assume it will just go away. And then I found out it did not go away. And instead, like we said, the, the good parts rose to the surface of, okay, I genuinely miss this. I genuinely miss that. Can I now trust myself the way I feel like I can trust myself and say, I need to keep those elements. And that was what kind of led me back into then the kink scene because there is such a beautiful community there of people who do embrace that as normal, as acceptable, as lovable. And there isn't this stigma and fear around it. Um, but again, still that's a little lacking on the emotional side of things. So hopefully that will continue to change. And I'm just sharing my experiences in the meantime. The key word of that entire answer is when you said the word disorder. Mm -hmm. Because as we are finding with many things in life, things are labeled as a disorder when we don't understand what they are. I think people might say people who are kinky have some sort of disorder. 
I think people who are scared of shame, that's called an anxiety disorder. What if there wasn't a disorder, but rather an order that we're trying to find? Mm. Yes. Yes. And that's where I feel, again, this has just been such a, a deeply important part to me. And one that also I have been hesitant at times to speak on in, in too much depth because I am very sensitive of this is a sensitive subject. Everyone views right now mental health in different ways. And that's a very personal journey for anyone of how they view their mental health or their mental illness. But I absolutely feel very, very strong in myself of knowing this is not a disorder. This is something that takes extra care and sensitivity to learn how to live with a certain perspective on how to look at myself and this part of myself. Um, I may need, again, an extra extra care in this area, but that doesn't mean that that is not entirely possible. That doesn't make it wrong. That doesn't make it a disorder. It's not a perversion. There's nothing that needs to be, you know, the stigma around this area does not need to be there. And again, I understand completely the people who can't relate at all having that instinctual reaction of, well, something must be wrong with you. If you're choosing pain, if you like pain, like something must they, they can't fathom it. They can't understand it. And I do get it fully, but I think that they, they aren't giving people enough credit to have that kind of self-trust and integrity with themselves and protection of themselves to make that choice fully for their, on their own. And I think even something as simple as getting a tattoo is painful. Something like skydiving is a risk for your life, but yet we Again, the areas where society normalizes that versus the areas where, okay, now it's a perversion, now it's a disorder, now it's wrong. And I think that immediately slapping a label like that onto it just inhibits a lot of actual healing and true, you know, self-acceptance versus just drowning things in shame. I had a very difficult but very important conversation with a very good friend of mine who has a pair of twin daughters. Mm. And one of them had been hurting herself. And I mentioned to her about the story about the, uh, the masochist that I met that says it helps me focus and such. I would guess there is a very difficult and fine line between physically hurting yourself and something that is healthy. How do you figure out where that line is? Yes, absolutely. And that's, that was one of the biggest fears I personally had in terms of around that 19, 20 year old age when I was really kind of coming to a head with at, at my own personal rock bottom of complete self-loathing, complete self-harm out of such a negative place. It was absolutely done to punish myself to it. There was still always the masochistic element of, I enjoy this, but that was not my intention in that situation. Um, and I think for me, again, personal path. But for me, when I did take those few years away from all of this, I'd made a very firm commitment. I'm not self-harming anymore. I'm 
that is over. Like I am going to do this. I'm going to address all the inner emotional pain I need to. And I like, I know I can do this. I went through that period, but then when I started to have all of those longings, it wasn't, it wasn't for self-harm the way I had used, you know, used to conduct that. It was just a genuine longing for the physical pain. And again, when I saw the BDSM community, it's like, well, theoretically, why is it okay with a partner? But yet if I'm single or I don't want to go find a play partner or some other kind of dynamic with another person, why is that now not okay for me? When I do feel very clear in my intention, I have my care and safety, my best interest at heart here. I love myself. I'm not trying to hurt myself emotionally. I like I have a very strong, resilient relationship now with my with my dark parts. And I don't see if I want to engage in a act of physical of pain play, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, why why is that not okay just because I don't want to involve another person? Um, so that's where I think that whether you're with another person now or whether you're on your own, it the intention and the reason why you're doing it, the place you're in emotionally, the, you know, all the deeper layers beneath that are what's always crucial because you could be going into a BDSM scene with someone else. And we see that plenty of times on the dominant side of people masking abuse and different things by using BDSM as an excuse to do that. And if the intention is not genuine in that way of having everyone's best interest at heart and true safety in mind and care and respect for everyone involved, then it, you know, you might want to reevaluate where you're doing that. So I think that to me, I have applied that same equation to myself, but that did come after many years of really building that strong relationship with myself and also transparency. That was part of why I did start talking about things with my friends and family, because I didn't want them to worry. And I wanted to also get their feedback. And I knew that they really supported me and loved me in terms of being very just overall encouraging people and just who they are. And I knew that as I needed to, let's say, kind of work through this perspective of voicing that to them to just get a sounding board that was outside of my own head, since I was still learning to trust that voice that told me, no, you can do this, this, you know, this equation you have of the intention truly mattering of having that love in place of having, you know, your aftercare protocol still needs to be the same. Like, you know, all these aspects, like you can't skimp on those things. And if you need to meditate beforehand and then have, yeah, like a big cuddle session afterwards and watch your favorite movie and so, like, you need to make sure you're addressing any open wounds, like all of the same principles you would apply in a BDSM situation. Like, you know, it just takes more integrity with myself of really checking in of, okay, can I, can I actively engage in this situation from the right place today? And if not, then we're not doing that. And we have certain, like, I have certain hard limits. I have certain boundaries. All of those things that I would have in a scene with someone are still always in place. And if I can't uphold that, then I don't participate in it. I'll finish with the question that I perhaps should have started with, hmm. but I think it's more appropriate to finish this way. I know that when I had my first true impact scene, 
And I know from talking with other people who enjoy being on the receiving side of impact, that pain allows them to feel something. When the world is going crazy around them, when everything seems that it's too much to take, to be involved in an impact scene that is full of pain and potentially increasing pain to the point where I said to my play partner, I don't think you could hit me hard enough mm. when I had just gone through one of the most awful weeks of my life. Mm -hmm. Replacing the mental pain with physical pain and creating something that was real seemed to be the thing that allowed me to release it. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, is this the first step into masochism and conscious masochism? Yes, I would say it's not, it's not the only first step, but for anyone who let's say does lean towards physical or sexual masochism, that probably is going to be the first step that they would relate to or that would be most effective. Um, absolutely. I think that that moment of realization for you of seeing that process happen and knowing that when, let's say when pain comes into the equation, that it serves as that amplifier and it is amplifying, let's say if you go into that with the intention of, okay, I need to displace and release this emotional and mental pain right now that I'm experiencing. I'm going to use this physical pain as a channel to do that. And I, again, still have all of my boundaries in place. You know, I, I trust the other person in the scene. All of that is still there. But knowing like I am going to give myself permission to go to whatever extreme end does feel authentically right in this for me to process and release this emotional buildup and heal to get to the other side and then find that sense of release and connection back with your core. Yeah. Rachel, please tell us all the ways we can connect with you. Mm, well, you've already mentioned a few. <laughs> so yes, uh, definitely anyone who wants to come join me at Instagram. I am there nearly every day at The Conscious Masochist. Uh, you can go check out my website and sign up for my email list at rachelledum.com. And again, as he mentioned, between the upcoming course we are just about to launch into um, and the Starkist readings, there are a couple different ways to connect with me if you want to learn about this perspective and work more one-on-one. -on -one. So thank you so much. Rachel, it has been eye-opening. It has been amazing to hear this side of the story, especially when so many of my guests are of the pro-dom ilk or of the top side. It is mm. so amazing to finally hear from the right side of the slash in such a thoughtful way. And I greatly appreciate you enlightening me and bringing such amazing information to our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. It has been an absolute honor to be here. And I really appreciate the conversation and care and open-mindedness and your thoughtful questions. So thank you. I was totally blown away by the concepts presented on this episode with Rachel. She has tapped into a part of my mind I hadn't even considered. 
and I will definitely look into as my own personal journey continues. Next week, we are in Fuego with Sam Toby, the artist known as Flo Mayhem, who makes Flames her dance partner and creates art with the amazing entertainment known as rope darting, and she loves to teach it too. It's a great look into the creative mind of someone who lives life to the fullest. And that will bring to a close this edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. I'm John, also known as Hi There, Katsu, thanking you for being with us. I hope we've earned the privilege of your time and reminding you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. Leave us a message at 513-788-2527. And we invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. We're kinky done differently. 